Father, how much we need you. Lord, the only defense that we have is in you, Lord Jesus. The only righteousness we could ever possibly hope to have is in you, Lord Jesus. And so as we come and gather in this place today, we throw ourselves at your grace and your mercy once again and thankful and grateful that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that we have you as our defense and you as our righteousness. And when we surrender and confess our sin and turn to you, Father, that you will forgive us and heal us and restore us. Thank you for this gathering today. Bless our time together in your word. Draw us to yourself, Father. Strengthen us continuing to go out in this world and living for you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you as we gather in worship today, both here and those of you that are joining us online. If we have not met before, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here as an assistant pastor. And today we're going to continue walking through our Restore and Rebuild series as we've been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. As we were walking through the books of Ezra, the chapters of Ezra several weeks ago, we first looked at how the remnant of the people came back into the land out of exile and how they began to rebuild the temple. And then over the last couple of weeks as we entered into to Nehemiah, we saw how Nehemiah led the people in beginning to rebuild the wall. The last week, Cole led us in beginning to look at God rebuilding His people. And what we saw that God's Word positions our hearts to live in alignment with Him. And this week, we're going to continue to see, as a continuation of last week, the result of God's Word in the hearts of the people. I joined the Marine Corps back in the 90s, and I was, uh, came here to Paris Island in 1994. And one of the things I was anticipating, among many things, in coming to basic training was the gas chamber. Uh, for those of you that have experienced that, it was something that kind of uh, was building some anxiety as the day approached. And so when the day arrived, we went to the training area, we had some classroom instruction, then the time came to go out back to the gas chamber. And it was about a t maybe a 12 by 20 block building. Uh, and so we suited up and we put on our masks and, and our group was led into the chamber, the door shut, and they posted probably two of the biggest drill instructors they could find at Paris Island by the door, arms crossed, to make sure that we all stayed in. And so as the, the uh, instructor that was there began to activate the gas, we could see it start to fill the room and the vapor, but we could also feel it. We knew it was there because the, the backs of our hands, the backs of our necks, any exposed skin started to tingle and burn, and so we knew it was there. And so step one was to basically build a little confidence, and so they just had us remove our mask uh, just to hear, and uh, everybody, of course, is holding their breath, and then at the command, put it back on, and the way you get the mask to seal again is you exhale as hard as you can to push out anything that may have collected into the mask, and then put your hand over the filter and inhale, and that creates a seal. And so everyone did that relatively successfully, just a couple of coughs here and there, and everyone was good to go. And then the real fun begins, because the next step is on the command to take off the mask and hold it out in front of you. And this time we held the mask out long enough so that even those that could hold their breath the longest had to try to take a breath. And the moment we did that, of course, we realized that 
most of the life-giving and sustaining oxygen in the room had been replaced by poisonous and toxic tear gas, CS gas. And so everyone began to choke and to cough. And what that also does is it kind of releases everything in your sinuses. And so I'll let you figure out what all that means. Uh, But it also includes your eyes pouring. And we all, I'm sure, I know I thought I was going to die. And then finally the command comes to put the mask back on. And so quickly everyone grabs their mask, puts it back on with as much energy as they can muster, tries to exhale anything that's in the mask and our lungs by now and creates a seal. And then they lead us out to where we could take the mask off and, and really begin to breathe in uh, that life-giving oxygen. And what we learned in that exercise, if we didn't already know it, is that oxygen is very important to life. And when we inhale things that are toxic and poisonous, that they, are, uh, they will affect us. They, they keep us from being able to even function or perform with the energy and the vitality that we need to. But when we, when we are able to instead breathe in that life-giving oxygen that God has provided, it allows us to thrive and fulfill the purpose, uh, the purposes of life that God has given for us. And what we're going to look at today as we continue in Nehemiah is how as the people spent time in God's Word, that they, that they understood that the things that were in their life had become toxic and poisonous, and they needed to expel those in confession, and instead needed to breathe in a healthy dose of God's grace and God's mercy and recommitment to Him. And so what we'll see today, our main idea for today, is that confession and repentance are two sides of the same coin and should be just as natural as breathing for the follower of Christ. Just some context for us as we pick up from last week in chapter 8. If you remember from last week, if you were with us, as the people read the law, they realized that they had not been obedient in keeping the appointed festivals that God had laid out for them. God had laid out seven different times a year where the nation of Israel was to come together and celebrate His goodness and celebrate His good hand upon them. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2 from last week, we saw that it was the first day of the seventh month. This was a significant day because it would mark the day that they would celebrate the Feast of Trumpets or the Festival of Trumpets. It was a day of holy convocation, a day of celebration. If you remember, they were instructed last week not to mourn, not to grieve, not to weep, because this was a time they were supposed to celebrate God's goodness. It's not rehearsed for us in chapter 8, but nine days later would be the tenth day of the seventh month, and that would be the Day of Atonement. That would be a holy day of Sabbath and fasting a holy convocation where the people would come together and the high priest would go in and offer sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And then that brought them to the 15th day of the seventh month. And we saw last week where they celebrated the Festival of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. This was marked by a week of spending time living in temporary shelters where they would make temporary shelters and cover them with branches and leaves, and they would live in them for a week in order to commemorate the time that they had spent in the wilderness and how God had provided for them and carried them through. And so for a week long, they would celebrate God's goodness and God's hand. And then that week would be concluded with another day of Sabbath and the convocation. And they would fulfill all of these obligations throughout the course of the month, of the seventh month, which would conclude with that last day of the Festival of Booths on the 23rd day of the month, which brings us to Nehemiah 9 beginning in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. 
And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And so what we see, first of all, is the people spent time in God's Word. And as they came to this point of confession, that they entered a, a time of confession to invoke God's great mercies toward them. For almost a month, the people had been soaking in the Word of God. Back in chapter 8, verse 3, remember they spent from early morning to midday in God's Word with the Levites discipling them and teaching them what they were reading and how their lives were out of alignment with God's Word. In chapter 8, verse 13, they came to Ezra again to study the words of the law. In chapter 8, verse 18, it says they spent daily time in the Word throughout the entire festival of booths. And the response of this time in the Word was recognition of their sin and the sins of their fathers. And so first of all, we want to see together that confession is sparked by God's Word. Back in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, the middle of uh, verse 9, Nehemiah says, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. We see that conviction had set in as the people began to spend time in God's Word and understood how their lives and how their hearts were out of alignment with the Lord. But because the festivals were before them, because they needed to follow the Lord in obedience and begin to obey all that He had commanded them, they had to set that aside for a period, for, for 23 days. Even though the Word of God was convicting them, they had to set aside being able to truly deal with their sin and, and obey God by following Him in these appointed festivals. And so as they near the end of the month now, with the required festivals completed, soaking in the Word all month long with conviction building, they now have an opportunity to confess their sin. And Nehemiah says they assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with ashes on their head. They had a posture of contrition towards the Lord and acknowledgement of the sin that was in their lives. And once again, they come to the Word of God. Nehemiah says they spent a quarter of the day, probably three more hours, in God's Word. And then another quarter of the day, worshiping the Lord as the Word brought about an awareness of their sin and coming before Him and finally being able to confess those sins that were in their life. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 writes, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we come to the Word of God, fight the temptation just to check off a reading plan or just to do it to ease your conscience or your guilt. When we come to the Word of God, when we spend time in the Word of God, when we soak in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God will illuminate our hearts and illuminate our minds and show us those areas, drive into those areas, those thoughts, those intentions that are sinful, that are out of alignment with God's Word. And this is what we see happening here with the people of Israel as they had spent nearly a month in God's Word. And so first we see that confession is sparked by God's Word. Next we see that confession is specific to His ways. Verses 6 through 37 are quite interesting. For as the Levites began to lead the people in confession corporately, we get sort of a Spirit-inspired commentary, an Old Testament survey 
if you will, of the entire Old Testament. If you ever read the Old Testament and wonder if you're, if you're truly understanding it and grasping it correctly, if the narrative that you're reading is really what took place, we have here essentially a commentary from then contemporary authors of the, of the broad brushes of the narrative of the Old Testament. And we see their names listed out in verse 5. And what the Levites do is essentially cover the major history of humanity specific to the nation of Israel and God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness throughout the entire time. We see they recount creation, the Abrahamic covenant, the exodus from Egypt, the wanderings in the wilderness, the conquest of the land, the time of the judges, the time of the prophets, and the exile that had led them up to returning from back to the land. And the Levites give us essentially a broad brush of both God's justice and God's mercy. Throughout this sweeping commentary, we see a repeating pattern over and over again. And let's look at a few of these repeating patterns together. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, we see God's activity towards the people. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. But look at the people's response in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We see in verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. We see God's response even in that in verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor did the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. We see God's hand towards them again in verse 25. They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And yet again, we see the people in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. In verse 27, God, again, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But the people again, in verse 28, after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies. Israel here, as they recount their national history, as they recount their personal history. They are acknowledging the specific ways that they had sinned against the God of heaven. And their confession was not just a general, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Their confession was specifically naming how they had disobeyed God and his commandment. For us, that means instead of confessing our sin in general terms, we bring the specific ways that we have sinned against the holy God to him in confession. We name the ways that we are out of alignment with his law and his instruction. And for Israel, we see their genuine heart of contrition and confession summarized in verses 36 
and 37, where the Levites write, Behold, we are slaves to the, this day. In the land that you give our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gift, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And so we see that confession is sparked by God's Word. Confession is specific to God's ways, but we see here also the good news that confession is safe due to His grace and His mercy. Time and again, as the Levites lead the nation in confession, not only do we see the repeating pattern of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness, but we see the great and marvelous truth of the abundant and matchless grace and mercy of our God. Again, in verses 16 through 21, we saw how the nation of Israel continued to rebel against the Lord. But in verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. In verses 26 through 28, we saw again as the nation rebelled, how in midway through verse 27, according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28, when the, yet when they cried, turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And in verses 30 and 31, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. As they summarize their unfaithfulness in light of God's righteousness, in verse 33, they speak the truth. Yet you, God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Even in the midst of a national history of repeated failures due to sin, even in light of their own personal sin, and rebellion against the Lord, the people run to God in confession, knowing that because of His abundant grace and His abundant mercy, that He is safe. Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah writes in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And just as the Israelites could bring their sin before the Lord in safety and in confidence, trusting in the fact that His abundant grace and mercy would cover their sin, so can we through Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. The wages of sin against the holy God is death. It's eternal separation. It's God's wrath. But in Christ, the wrath of God has been fully satisfied. And as such, God is the safe place to turn to as we recognize and confess our sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we don't stop there. Acknowledging and confessing our sin is just the first step in a two-part action 
of dealing with our sin fully. And whereas confession invokes God's great mercy toward us, repentance honors God's great covenant with us. In chapter 9, in verse 38, we see the people turning to the Lord in repentance. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document or the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They say because of all this, because of the history of disobedience in our nation and in our own lives, because of the state we find ourselves in, because of God's abundant mercy, the nation makes a firm covenant in writing. Essentially, they're saying, God, we are making a covenant with you to keep the covenant, God, that you have made with us. So as we look at repentance quickly, we first see that repentance is the response of confession. While confession begins the process of dealing with our sin by acknowledging it, repentance completes the process of dealing with our sin by committing to address it. Confession says, I see where I'm wrong or I'm out of alignment with you, God, and I am truly sorry for that. Repentance says, now I'm going to do my best in the power of Christ to not do it again. We can confess our sin without an intent to change, and in that our confession is worthless. It's like punching someone in the face and being sorry for it and apologizing, knowing that you're about to punch him in the face again, right? Our confession of sin must be marked by genuine contrition as we understand how we have violated God's way for us, but it also must be followed by a genuine desire to put it behind us. And it doesn't mean we won't ever commit the same sin again, but it does mean that we genuinely desire not to and seek to honor our commitment in the power of Christ and His Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our next point. Repentance is realignment to Christ. We see through the opening verses of chapter 10 the list of all the princes, the Levites, the priests who signed the document and signed the covenant on behalf of the people. And we pick up in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, the nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. After acknowledging and confessing their sin, the Levites make a commitment to once again strive for a life that honors God and the covenant He has made with them. Throughout the rest of chapter 10, the Levites get specific, naming ways that they will commit to following God and obeying His commands in alignment with the Mosaic law. In verse 30, they will once again prohibit intermarriage with nations that are outside the covenant. In verse 31, they will once again honor the Sabbath days and the Sabbath years that God had prescribed for them in the law. In verses 32 through 39, they will once again support the life of the temple ministry and the offerings and the sacrifices. And they learn that, that repentance means to once again to change our mind and our, and our heart into alignment with God and His ways. Here we see the Levites leading the nation in a change of heart and mind to once again follow the law as prescribed by Moses. For us today, we're not bound by the terms of the Old Covenant, but instead the terms of the New Covenant in Christ's blood. And so for us, what might repentance in these areas look like today? Instead of a prohibition against intermarriage, for us today, repentance in this area would include honoring and upholding the institution of marriage as God has defined it and honoring and upholding our own marriage vows. For us today, it would look like instead of rigid sabbatical observance, 
it would include setting aside a regular intentional time daily and weekly to dwell in Christ's rest and dwell in time in his word and be renewed by his spirit. Instead of following the prescribed offerings and sacrifices of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant in regards to temple worship, for us today, repentance in this area would look like being fully active and immersed in the life of our local body and in our local church. And if you've never initially entered into Christ's rest by receiving the free gift of eternal life that he has made available for you through his sinless life, through his death in your place, through his victorious resurrection, repentance in this area today would look like turning from your life of sin or turning from your attempts to work your way into God's favor or presence and turning to him, receiving the free gift of grace that he offers you. So our repentance is the expected response of confession. Our repentance is realignment to Christ. And third and finally, our repentance is rooted in the covenant. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Whereas the Israelites had the old covenant, we have the new covenant in Christ's blood. The writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Just as we can safely confess our sins before a gracious and merciful God, we can draw near to our Lord Jesus Christ in repentance, trusting in the covenant that has been made with us through his blood and the fact that his payment for our sin is eternal. Confession and repentance should be just as natural as breathing for the follower of Christ. If we are walking with Christ, The same way that we naturally exhale and inhale, confession and repentance should be a normal and natural part of our life. Laurie and I serve with the military ministry of Campus Crusade crew, and our founder, Dr. Bill Bright, had a metaphor that he developed for confession and repentance that he called spiritual breathing. And just as when we are breathing, we have to exhale to get rid of the toxic and poisonous carbon dioxide, the things that we take into our lungs. We have to exhale that to get it out of our life and inhale the the fresh oxygen that God has provided for us in His grace to sustain our life. In the same way, spiritually speaking, as the the sin of this life and and the sin of our heart and our flesh accumulates, as the poisonous and toxic thoughts and ideologies and behaviors and actions accumulate in our life, We need to exhale those things in confession to get those out of our life as we confess them before a holy God. And in that moment, then spiritually speaking, we can inhale a fresh dose of God's abundant grace and mercy and recommit our lives to align with Him and His ways for us that are healthy and that are not grievous. And so as we begin to wrap this up today, What do we do with what we have seen through the nation of Israel, through Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10? First of all, allow the Word of God to soak into your soul. As you spend time in God's Word, allow God's Word to dwell into your heart. 
Allow the Holy Spirit of God to pierce through the division of soul and spirit and discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, to show you the ways that are out of alignment with God, to show you the ways, the toxic and poisonous things that have built up in your life that need to be exhaled. Allow the Word of God to do that work in your heart as it soaks into your soul. Second, as God illuminates those things in your mind through His Holy Spirit, regularly confess the sin that poisons our life. As God brings those specific things to mind, specifically name them and confess them and exhale them from your life. And third and finally, repent and walk in spiritual vitality in Christ. Inhale the abundant grace and mercy that God has offered on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Commit ourselves once again to be in alignment with His ways for us. Even if it's for the 10th time, the 50th time, commit yourself once again to be in alignment with His ways for you and to follow His plan for your life. As we close our service today and prepare to enter into a time of communion and celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're going to take an opportunity to practice what's just been preached and spend time in confession and repentance. And so I would invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes in this moment. And as you do, ask the Holy Spirit of God to identify things in your life that are not in alignment with His Word. Ask Him to identify things that are harmful, that are toxic, that are poisonous. Maybe it's a thought, maybe it's an ideology. Maybe it's some action or deed. Ask the Lord to highlight the specific sins that are in your life. And as he begins to highlight those, confess those to him. Exhale those things from your life in confession as you confess specifically to the Lord the things that he has named and the things that he has shown, knowing that as you come to him in confession, you can do so in safety in the abundance of his grace and his mercy. And as you confess these things, repent of them. Recommit again, even if for the fifth time this week, recommit again that you will, in the power of Christ and his Holy Spirit, align yourself with his ways and walk in his goodness. And then finally, thank him for the abundance of his grace and mercy in your life. Thank you. Thank him that his mercies are new every morning and that his faithfulness is great. Father, we are just so grateful for this time that we've had together in your word today. God, even as I have prepared this week, you have shown me how sin in my life is so quick to rise itself up and wants to just poison my thoughts and my mind and draw me away from you. And I am so thankful that we can come to you freely and safely and confess those things. We're so grateful that your mercies are new every day and that through your Holy Spirit, we have the opportunity to seek to walk in your power and walk in newness of life. So we thank you for the opportunity, the grace that you have given us, even in this moment, to understand and deal with our sin. And we pray for the remainder of our time that you would be glorified. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name.